good morning, beloved. It is so good to see you this morning as we worship together, lift up the name above every name, even the name of Jesus, to which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. If you are so gracious and able, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be reading and examining this morning verses 25 to 32. So when you have that, please do stand for the reading of God's word. Hear ye this morning the word of the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, as we approach you this morning, we ask God that you would help us to lay aside every sin, every high and lofty thought, and argument that we brought up against the knowledge of Christ. May we bring every thought captive onto the obedience of Christ. Lord, help us, God, in this moment also to recognize your sovereignty in all things, to know that from you and to you are all things. And we ask, God, that this morning you'd grant us the good gift of your spirit to be able to comprehend, to see, and to believe all that you've laid out for us in Holy Scripture unto the glory of God the Son. In his name we do pray. Amen. Well, I'll be honest, church, this is a message that um, I had a hard time coming up with, developing, writing, and also I think I'm going to have a hard time delivering to you. And the reason is because it's, a, it's kind of a heavy topic. And when we look at the scriptures ahead of us, uh, in today's uh, sermon is called, Do Not Grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, during the preparation for this sermon, I fell under deep conviction uh, for I have found myself to be a man who at times have grieved the heart of God, the Holy Spirit. And all of us as sinners, as fallen sons and daughters of Adam, have come under that same condemnation of sin, under that same wrath that abides. Uh, but we've also come to recognize the peace and the gift that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. So may, we, so may I share this message in light and in the spirit of, of what I just said. That God is gracious. He's good. He's abounding in love. He's forgiving. But there are some hard truths for us to grasp and to come to terms with in the text. In the last section that we spoke of last week in general uh, terms, we saw that there was a putting off of the old life characterized by ignorance, futility, and deceit. And so also we saw the lust and the impurity and the lust of the eyes in the previous text of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. In its place, however, in place of the old man, in place of the old habits or the old sins of the old man, we see that we are to put on a new nature, a new man. That means a, a new life, a new way of life characterized by holiness and righteousness. And in this section, the apostle turns to speak quite specifically of the sins that are to be put off and the positive qualities or types of action that must be found in the new Christian life under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a pattern of negative prohibition and positive commands and motivation in these verses ahead of us. But most importantly, Paul lays out a pattern and also activities that grieve the heart of God's Holy Spirit. God's word again says in Ephesians 4 verse 25, he says, Therefore, as a result of having put away falsehood, 
Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If you're following along in today's teaching, we are to put away falsehoods. We are to put away falsehoods. Now, why, why is falsehood such a grievous sin to the heart of God's Spirit? Because the Bible teaches that God is the God of truth. The Spirit himself is the one who bears witness of the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us, leads us into all truth. Therefore, falsehood, the opposite of truth, grieves the heart of God's Spirit. It's the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of truth. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is grieved by lies, is grieved by falsehoods. Therefore, when we see in the commandments, thou shalt not lie, it's not a trivial matter in regard to good moral character and to even goodness for civilization, but it is something that is at the very heart of who God is. He is the God of truth. He's the opposite of the lie. He's the opposite of falsehood. Therefore, we see with such imperative, with such power, with such conviction, truth matters. And truth matters in all aspects of life. And God does not rejoice in falsehood, but he rejoices in the truth. Therefore, again, we see that Paul, focusing on the new man, the character of the new creation, he says that we must put away falsehood. That is to mean that we no longer live according to lies, and nor do we perpetuate lies in our day-to-day life. Now, why is it that we, as humans, lie? Well, it's pretty clear. Our fallen nature dictates that we lie because it is in our own self-interest to lie. It is in our own self-preservation to lie. It is for our own advancement to lie. And we lie often about things that will help make us look better to the world, make us look better to one another in the church. And we say, no, I've never done that. Or actually, you know, I did this once, and we oftentimes, you know, we exaggerate a story, maybe add some details here and there, sprinkle it around, and make it seem a lot neater and cleaner than it actually is. And the Bible is encouraging us, reminding us to put away such falsehood. Brethren, the reason we put away falsehood is because we are members of one another. You can write that in there as well in the insert. We're to put away falsehoods because we are members of of one another. You see, deception grieves God's heart as it attempts to cover up, shift blame, deflect responsibility, and it tramples on the saving work of the cross and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. God has saved us from such a great wrath, a wrath and indignation that we rightfully and dutifully uh, uh, was ours in our flesh. We merited it. We merited such wrath from God. And yet in his goodness and his kindness, he has given us a way, a means of escape from the due penalty of our sins. And he's done so in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that we can come face to face with the truth. The truth of who we are. Broken sons and daughters of Adam. And come to the realization of who he is true God incarnate. And in doing so, we see the chasm between creator and creation, between perfect holiness and fallenness, between that which is pure, lovely, and true, and that which has fallen in the falsehoods of this world. But in coming to him, we recognize this truth that we are not only coming on to him to be united with him, the God of truth, but that we are then united to one another, the body of Christ, the church, you and I. You see, truth matters. Truth matters because truth has many implications for life and for godliness and for what is true. Certainly, you do not like to be lied to. Certainly, there's a a feeling, uh, an emotion that is stirred up when one is lied to. Therefore, When we lie to one another, we're hurting each other. We're hurting the very body of Christ. 
the very one who saved us and delivered us from such a great wrath. And so, brethren, may it be our aim to put away falsehood, to live under the light of truth, to follow not just in speech and word, but in duty and in life, the God of truth. The one who is said of in Scripture, where the Lord Jesus himself said of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Do you, can now, can you now begin to see why then falsehood, lies, really hurt and come at odds with the heart of God's Spirit? He does not rejoice in lies, but he rejoices in the truth. You see, falsehood is an infection in the body of Christ. Falsehood is an infection in the body that can affect all working parts of that body. I want you, if you can, uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read to you from Zechariah chapter 8. And notice what the prophet Zechariah said in relation to this topic of falsehood and truth. And he says in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, these are the words of the Lord. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Not only does it grieve God's spirit to live under the pretense of falsehood and lies, but in fact it is something that God hates. He detests. Notice that our God is one of love. The scripture says God is love. But that is not to the exclusion of the things that he hates. There are things that God hates. And one who bears false witness. A tongue that is quick to lie. One who spreads falsehood. Is indeed a thing. And even a person that God detests. And the scripture says to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Therefore, brethren, recognize that truth is of the utmost importance to God. Yahweh is himself, again, the God of truth. Jesus is the truth. Therefore, we as members of Christ ought not to make light of what is false while also practicing and believing the truth. Now, this is a hard truth to swallow. Why? Because we're liars. You don't think so? How many lies have you told in your life? One? Two? A couple of dozen? A couple of hundred? Maybe even a couple of thousand? How many lies does it take to be considered a liar? Truly just one. And we have all fallen desperately short of God's law. All desperately and woefully short of God's mark. And yet, I do not say this to make you feel small or bad, but if that's the outworking of the message, then I'm not too upset over that either. But in reality, it's to show you who you are and where you need to go to. Because as fallen sinners, we need to go to the cross. And in the cross, we find the intersection of truth and forgiveness. And in God's truth, you and I can be forgiven of every lie, of every falsehood, and every time that we've grieved the heart of God's Spirit. As the prophet Zechariah received from the Lord this word, these are the things that you shall do. Here's a command. Speak the truth to one another. Now that can be difficult. Because sometimes we lie and we do not tell the truth out of fear of what may result from telling the truth from what it may do maybe to another person, may hurt their feelings, may grieve their heart. But the Bible tells us that when we speak the truth, we speak it in love. We speak it not in a cold, malicious way to just pierce someone's heart and leave them out to bleed, but instead we tell the truth in a way that we minister to them and bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Truth matters. Therefore, brothers and sisters, speak the truth 
to one another. Render in our gates and your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. There's a way to speak the truth in love that makes way for peace, that makes way for reconciliation, that makes way for a way to glorify our God and Father in this way, that we would not love the false oaths of this world, but instead that we would hate what God hates and love what he loves. This is the command from our God, the God of truth. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul reminds in Ephesians 4, telling the church in Ephesus, the character of the new man is to put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Truth has implications because we're all connected. We're all deeply connected in a way that we cannot even fathom in Christ. And the truth is, is that we must speak the truth. And the truth matters. God goes on to say, through by means of the Apostle Paul in verse 26, giving us another example of the old man, the new man. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know what's fascinating about this text is that, interestingly enough, anger in itself is not a sin. He says, be angry, yet... Do not sin. I've always found that a really hard thing to, to wrestle with because usually when I'm angry, sin is right at the door. And, and, and it's almost indistinguishable. When I'm angry, I feel like I have a, a right to be angry. Like something was wronged. Like I was wronged. And because I'm so important, you should be angry too. And you should be okay with me taking judgment and action. And yet the scripture says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This has always been really interesting imagery to me. I, I've always wondered, what exactly does this mean? To be angry, not to sin. How do we do that? How do we embody that? And yet there was one who did embody just that. The Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous one. The one who was holy, perfect, blameless. He himself, in his incarnation, in his life and ministry, found occasions in which he was angry. Can you think of any? Can you think of one? You know, I think to the time in which Jesus went to the temple, and he sees all the money changers. And what swells up into the heart of Christ, the God-man, is this righteous indignation where he saw his father's house the father of the celestial lights, the father of all good things. His house had become a house of thieves, of money changers. Now, not only were they conducting business on the property of the temple complex, but often what was being done in these exchanges, in these money changers, was that they would be using uh, uh, unfair, unjust practices to rip off people for more money. They were conducting themselves in an unhonorable way, in a way that was deceitful, filled with falsehood. And Christ comes into the picture, and he sees what's happening, and he begins to flip tables over. So if you ask yourself the question, in life circumstances, what would Jesus do? Understand this, flipping tables is an option. It's an option. At times. You see... Christ was righteously angry, and yet he did not sin. The Bible says he is holy, perfect, blameless, never sinned. Yet in his anger, he accomplished something. If you're following along, the Christian ought to control his anger so as to not give an opportunity to the devil. You see, in the Greek, the word for anger is not a boiling over rage, but rather can be a deep-seated, determined conviction. Anger can arise from a place of righteousness and holiness, as we have seen with Christ in his earthly ministry. But anger can certainly and often does, in fact, lead to sin. So what makes Christ's anger at the money changers different from your anger with your kids or your wife or the store clerk? You see, Christ's anger came from a place of zeal for God's holiness 
to be upheld, for God's righteousness, for God's kingdom. And when we often give ourselves over to anger, it is not from a godly zeal, but from selfish conceit. This type of anger and indignation gives opportunity to the devil to weaponize our anger and lead us into destructive sin. Notice again what the Word of God says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. And so anger can give opportunity, can arise opportunity for the enemy to use against you, to lead you into a serious sin. Usually men and women who commit murder commit it in the heat of passion and anger. Usually when we say things to our spouse that are cruel, mean, or unthoughtful, it arises from a place of anger. When we treat others in a way that is undignified, it usually comes from a place of anger. Be angry. Be angry at the things that makes God angry. Be angry against falsehood and lies. Be angry against sin. Be angry against inequality. Be angry against wickedness. Be angry to things that God detests. Yet, do not sin. When you develop a heart after God's own heart, you develop the qualities of Christ, you see that there are many things in this world to be angry about. But we don't channel that anger in a negative way in which we hurt people, but rather we use it in a way that is conducive to glorify God even more. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it go down. That is to say that it is to be now consuming all of you as darkness consumes the land. Let not Hate or anger consume your own hearts. Turn to Christ and, and allow the conviction of the Spirit to lead you into a constructive anger that motivates you and moves you to uphold the righteousness and holiness of Almighty God. So such anger, anger that leads to destruction, grieves the spirit of holiness. Psalm 37, 8 says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves. It tends only to evil. So there you have a, the psalmist saying to refrain from evil. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. And yet you have this the, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul saying, Be angry, yet not sin. There's a medium here. And for the Christian." One ought to not resort to anger, but more to understanding. Understanding why people are the way they are. Maybe why you were unjustifiably treated in a certain way. Give yourself not over to anger or to wrath because it tends only to evil. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly or foolishness. Whoever is slow to anger. That's a tough one sometimes. And the heat and busyness of life. I mean, we're, we're, we're so spoiled in the 21st century that if we have to wait more than a couple of minutes at the drive-thru, we're angry. You're like, what's taking so long? We can't understand. We, we, we can't put ourselves in other people's shoes or positions. And one of the things that God has called us to is to be a people of understanding, to be sympathetic towards the cause and pain and situations of others. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not give yourself over to anger, but instead control your anger. So as to not give an opportunity to the devil. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, and he says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here in this example, we see a thief, someone who is once a thief, someone who practiced thievery, called to repentance to no longer steal. This is a call to change. 
If you are a Christian, there should have been a change in you. If you are a Christian, there should still be a change in you. It's called the work of sanctification, where God grabs the thief and turns him from a thief to an honest man, from one who takes to one who gives. A liar, he takes one who, who, who speaks lies and, 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 and takes him from a life of falsehood to a man who now speaks the truth in love. Do you see the opposites, the contrast that Paul is bringing into focus in the text of what it looks like to be a new creation, what it looks like to be a Christian? Let the thief no longer steal. This is a call to change, call to repentance. But rather, here's what instead he should do, what he ought to do, is let him labor. Let him labor. Let him do honest work. Let him do what is right. If you're following along the teaching, the Spirit empowers the thief to do honest work. And then we see what else it says in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What is the opposite of, uh, of, of a corrupting mouth? It is one, a pure. Who said that? Well, okay, good. I like it when, some, when people respond during the sermon at times. Let the person who is a thief no longer be a thief. Let the one who is speaking corruption now speak purely, speak pure words, be speaking words of grace and truth. You see again the contrast that is being built here in God's word. But only speak that which is good for building up as fits the occasion. The next part of that Teaching is the spirit empowers the thief to do honest work in the foul mouth to speak grace. To speak grace. The opposite of corruption is grace. It's purity, it's love, it's joy, peace. All the things that come with the gifts and the power and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers and provides these things in us. So in order to understand what grieves his heart, we must understand that which makes his heart glad. And what makes God's heart glad, what makes the spirit glad, are the opposite of the works of the flesh. So instead of being a thief, we, we do honest work. Instead of being one who speaks corrupting talk, we speak uh, words of grace and truth and purity and love. These are the things that God has called us to. These are the things that make God's heart happy. Now remember who you are. In Christ, we are children of the Most High God. Children of God. And as a child, we ought to make it our aim to please the heart of our Father. Make it our aim to please our Heavenly Father in a way that would gratify Him, that brings joy to His heart as He has brought joy to us. You know, my children, oftentimes, they like to, they're very thankful kids. You can bring home, you know, a, a, a straw and say, this is for you. And they'll literally light up and say, thank you. They're just, they're just so happy that I thought of them and would bring anything to them. In the same way, we ought to be glad and happy that God has brought us out of falsehood, out of a life of thievery and, and dishonest gain and work, and has now allowed us to walk in the, in the newness of life, to embrace truth, to embrace grace, to embrace a purity of speech and life. And therefore, we should make it our aim to please the heart of our Father, the heart of our God, so that we let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Now, that, that, that's a heavy one. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. There ought to be a standard in how we speak to one another, how a husband speaks to his wife, how a wife speaks to her husband. There ought to be a standard in which we are no, not using words in a weaponized fashion to hurt, denigrate, look down upon, make feel other than anyone else in the body of Christ or anyone in the world even. Because what would the world think of us if we speak lowly of one another but also of the world? 
We must speak truth in love, speak graciously to people, spread words that are fit for the occasion, that are fit for the time in which we are living in. He says again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up. Words that are used for building up are that which are lovely, pure, true, and right. But there's a way in which we can use speech. The apostle James puts it this way, that that with the tongue, one praises our God and Father, but with it, we can set the world ablaze as we curse man made in God's own image. The tongue is a powerful tool. Probably the most powerful body part in Scripture. It's very powerful. Because again, with it, in one sense, we can praise God. With the other one, we can curse people made in God's image. The tongue is a powerful thing. Words are powerful. Your words matter. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do only that which will be for the building up and not for the tearing down. You ever been in a situation where someone just verbally just broke you and tore you down, made you feel so small? I had a boss once that made me feel that way, where I was very new to that to a position, and my boss, uh, w- within two days, was just berating me, saying, we hired you because we thought you could do this job, and you can't do it right, and, and, and if, if you can't do it right, then you shouldn't be in this position, and maybe we, did the, we made the uh, wrong choice in hiring you, and I was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller with each passing word. And at the end of that discussion, I felt just like quitting. I didn't feel built up. I didn't feel like I could even do this job. Like, he's right. Why, why, why did he choose me? Why, why am I chosen for this position? I'm too young. I'm inexperienced. I don't know what I'm doing. And neither did he provide the grace and the opportunity to show me and to teach me. Had he showed me and taught me and trained me, and maybe I would have been better in that position. But the same is true for all of us in all types of situations, brothers and sisters. We're not always fit for the occasion. We're not always ready to handle the opportunities ahead of us. But we ought to also recognize that people in our vicinity are not in the same place as well. Therefore, we should be patient, loving, kind, gracious to others. Use words that build up, that edify, instead of tearing down. And most importantly, brethren, this ought to be true in the church of God, and especially in our marriages, especially in our homes, that we speak to our spouse with dignity, love, and respect, that we see them as treasures of Christ given unto us, and not to berate our beloved Not to berate those in our home, our children, but to grow and love them in the admonition of the Lord. And this is such a need for our day. This is such a need for our people that we love one another truly and authentically. Because doing so will glorify the heart of our King and the heart of our Savior. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed, For the day of redemption. Do not grieve. This is a terrifying scripture. God's spirit. The spirit of holiness. The spirit that hovered over the surface of the deep in Genesis. The spirit that empowered the prophets. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Can be grieved by you. You can grieve the spirit of God. I can grieve The Spirit of God. Such a thought should move us to fear and trembling. Brethren, if it doesn't, you have not come to know the power of the Spirit. Because the power of the Spirit brings forth conviction. He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness. And if you can grieve the heart of this being, of God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, this is truly a terrifying thought. And it should motivate us in a way to fear the Lord. One of Israel's sins in the Old Testament, according to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2, was that the fear of me, Yahweh said, is not in you. They did not have a proper fear of the Lord. And the Bible says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's a proper fear of God. His greatness, His holiness, His otherworldliness 
ought to be so great that we fear displeasing the Spirit of holiness Himself. No one understand this. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a power. It is a divine person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. For instance, if the Jehovah Witnesses, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, similar to what you see in Star Wars, the movies. This inactive, impersonal force that kind of permeates all things and in between the walls and all these mystical things. That's not the Spirit of God in Scripture. The Spirit of God can be grieved. He's a person. Inanimate objects or forces cannot be grieved. The Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, is God. We see that in Acts chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 3. See it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, that the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. This is indeed the third person of the triune God, God the Holy Spirit. And it is possible, brethren, to grieve him who sealed us for the day of redemption. May it be our aim to not displease him, but to please him, to be found in him, to be used and shaped and molded by the spirit of holiness, that we become more and more like Jesus. That's the aim and the power of the spirit working in us, is that we become less like the thief, less like the liar, less like the one who speaks unwholesome speech, and more and more like Jesus. That's called your sanctification. God is making you more and more holy by the indwelling of the Spirit. And because He resides in you, God the Holy Spirit lives in you, has made His home in your heart. How then can it be that you share that holy divine space of your heart with idols, with falsehood, with lies, with debauchery, with wickedness, with slothfulness? Brethren, this is not the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh. And the Spirit is not pleased when we share that divine space of our heart with His Spirit and unrighteousness. It ought to convict us more and more to be holy. As we saw in the heart of the young rich ruler who came to Jesus, as we read from the story earlier today's service, he came to the Savior and he says, Lord, I've got this. I've done X, Y, and Z. I've, I've been doing the law. What else should I do? What else is there for me to do? And he missed the whole point. That it wasn't just the outward expression of the law, but it was the inward work of transformation that the Spirit enables and does in us. Because had the rich young man, had the Spirit of Christ in him, when Christ called him, commanded him to forsake all things, to sell all his possessions, he would have said, yes, Lord. It's all yours anyways. This belongs to you. All of my possessions are not my possessions. They're your possessions. Everything that I have, everything that I am, it's not for me, it's for you. To you and from you are all things. What is my life but a speck of dust? What is my life at all? If I know you and am in you and found in you, this is the conviction of the Spirit. That everything belongs to Jesus. That you are not your own possession, but that you belong to Him. Therefore, how we live matters. How we conduct ourselves in our lives, in our private lives, behind closed doors where no one is watching, it matters. It matters, beloved, because the spirit of holiness is there. He's watching you. He's living in you. He resides in you. Therefore, reject a sinful course of life and embrace the power of the spirit because it's all his anyways. It all belongs to him. Be not like the rich young ruler who rejected the call of following Christ, but instead laid all at his feet. He is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. Because he sealed you for the day of redemption. You were sealed. God has put his seal of promise on you through the Holy Spirit. Which means that come all the difficulties of life, all the corruptions of this world, 
will fail to remove us from that perfect day of redemption when we stand before him. Not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. And we stand in him approved. But we also know and recognize this, that on that final day, when we stand before the Lord, we have no righteousness of our own to stand in, only the righteousness of Christ. But the righteousness of Christ will change you even today before the throne. It will change you. It'll motivate you. It'll empower you to be different. This is the characterization of a new life, is to be different, not like the world. Therefore, knowing this great truth, that we can indeed grieve the heart of God's Spirit, that we were sealed for the day of redemption, it says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Be put away from you along with all malice. These are the things that we are to move away from. Why? Because we grieve the Spirit. I want you to write this in there. Second to last part of this, the teaching. We grieve the Spirit by returning to the works of the flesh. We grieve the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. These are all things that originate not from the spirit of holiness, but instead it originates in the flesh. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, if you can turn there for a moment, it would be edifying for us to turn there as we see a convicting passage also from the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 4, after we receive such a great word in verse 1 of, the, of Romans 8, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see the distinguishing factors of the works of the flesh and the work of the Spirit. Being in the flesh and in the Spirit, they cannot coexist. These are not meant to be so, which is why elsewhere in Scripture we see it as idolatry when we share the space of the temple of our hearts with the Spirit and with things that are not of God. It is idolatry. It is a grave sin. And those who are in the flesh, they cannot possibly please God. So we grieve the Spirit by returning to the works of the flesh. It does not make God's heart glad when we forsake such great a salvation from what He has saved us from and we continue to wallow in it as if that's something that is good. We ought to recognize again, as I said earlier, love what God loves, hate what God hates. And God hates bitterness, wrath, anger and clamor and slander. He hates these things. These are traits of the old man. Therefore, put them away. Run from them. Run as Joseph ran from sin. Run as Moses fled the pleasures of this world to follow the treasures of Christ. Run from such activities and such spirit and run to the spirit of Christ, the spirit of holiness. How can you do that? How can you, if you, as a Christian today, maybe some of the things I've said to you have convicted you. Maybe you feel like, maybe I've got too much anger in my heart still. I, I love Jesus. I worship Jesus. I'm born again, but I'm still wrestling with bitterness. I'm still mad about things that happened a long time ago. I'm still struggling with anger and resentment in my heart. What could I do 
And the call in Scripture is clear. Put away such traits by living in the fullness and reality of what God has called you to. Holiness. Holiness. What is holiness? In the Bible, the word holy means to be separate. An analogy I've shared of you before is to be cut and separate from the world. Cut and separate from that which is unholy, unrighteous. And as Christians, we sometimes have to take the scalpel. And as Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, you cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. And in doing so, we remove we remove the opportunities for the devil to crawl into our lives and infect us with the old man, infect us with sin, so that we now, uh, we, we, we want to run from those things. Run from it. So we do so by replacing malice, bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor with things that we find, for instance, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. These traits that should be yours and are abounding in us if we are in Christ. And we live according to that truth, that reality. And we put to death the old man by giving the old man no opportunity to arise. You give him no opportunity. You, 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 as a Christian, you have to choke out the old man. Choke every opportunity of sin. And so we don't take literally the fact that when Jesus says you have to cut your hand off or pluck your eye, obviously this is not a, a, something that we do literally. But for instance, if your cell phone is causing you to sin, your technology, if you're viewing things on your phone that you ought not to be viewing, pluck it out. If you have a computer at home and there are things that you're doing on it that isn't gratifying to God, take it out. If you're doing, if there's something that is facilitating a life apart from the spirit of holiness, remove it and come. Come to the people of God. We are members of one another. We're here for one another. Not here to judge you, look down upon you, to, to curse you, but instead to lift you up. To empower you to walk in this newness of life. So friends, we must take this fight seriously. Because it will either destroy you or ruin the good name of Christ. And neither are good options. So may we put to death the works of the flesh. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. That Christ may have the victory. We close with this Beautiful word from the Apostle Paul in verse 32. To be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I understand that this message may have been pretty heavy. Heavier than some of my previous messages. But I want you to know, and I want to end with this. There's a way and a means for you to be forgiven Totally. As Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the mark and the glory of God. And yet God has made a way for us to be forgiven. Because God, in the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, He is kind. He is tender-hearted. He is affectionate for you and towards you. And he has provided forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Through the cross of Jesus, all of your sins, all of your bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, lies, falsehood, deceitfulness, all of your dishonest work, all your thievery, all of your corrupting talk, all the times that you've blasphemed the good name, all of that was nailed to the cross. And through faith in Jesus Christ, understanding that he died in your place, 
He lived the life that you could not live, holy, perfect, blameless, died the death that you deserved, was raised again on the third day, and has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. You can be totally forgiven of sin and be given the gift of the Spirit of God to live in you, dwell in you, and to bring you to a closer image of Christ so that you may be sealed even today for the day of redemption onto eternal life. The last part of the teaching is the response to grievance is the kindness and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. May you today find, if you've never done it before, the kindness and forgiveness of Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin, acknowledging that you are indeed a sinner and recognizing that there is one who has paid your debt who is indeed a great Savior. And through faith in his shed blood, the Bible says you will then be transferred from death to life and you can have the gift of God's Holy Spirit to live in you, to change you, and to transform you. But if you be a believer today, found in Christ, and you say, I'm still struggling with the old man, brother and sister, find solace in this, that there is a kindness and there is a forgiveness that can empower you to be more and more like Jesus. May you find your peace and your solace in him and in him alone. Let me pray. Gracious Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that is alive and at work in us this morning, this afternoon, we pray that you would bring forth the conviction of your word and to bear fruit onto repentance and life. Help us not to be grieved to the point of worldly sorrow and despair which reaps forth death, but help us, Lord, God the Spirit, to be transformed in the renewing and the thinking of our mind to reach and attain a repentance that leads to life, even life eternal, through the shed blood of the cross of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for where we fall short. Forgive us for where we have grieved your heart. Oh, Lord, May it grieve and break us when we break your heart. May it grieve our soul when we grieve your heart. Lord, that we would love what you love and hate what you hate. And that we would find peace, forgiveness, forgiveness even for our trespasses. In Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forevermore. In his name we do pray. Amen.